0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Chapter 5, Part 2 Cold is the ogre that drives all beautiful things into hiding. Below the surface of a frostbound garden, there lurk hidden bulbs— which are only biding their time to burst forth in a riot of laughing color. But shivering nature dare not put forth her flowers until the ogre has gone. Not otherwise does cold suppress love. A man in an open cart on an English spring night may continue to be in love, but love is not the emotion uppermost in his bosom. It shrinks within him and waits for better times. The cart was not a covered cart. It was open to the four winds of heaven, of which the one at present active proceeded from the bleak east. To this fact may be attributed Ash's swift recovery from the exalted mood into which Joan's smile had thrown him, his almost instant emergence from the trance. Deep down in him he was aware that his attitude towards Joan had not changed but his conscious self was too fully occupied with the almost hopeless task of keeping his blood circulating to permit of thoughts of love. Before the cart had traveled twenty yards, he was a mere chunk of frozen misery. After an eternity of winding roads, darkened cottages, and black fields and hedges, the cart turned in at a massive iron gate, which stood open giving entrance to a smooth gravel drive. Here the way ran for nearly a mile through an open park of great trees and was then swallowed in the darkness of dense shrubberies. Presently to the left appeared lights, at first in ones and twos, shining out and vanishing again. Then, as the shrubberies ended and the smooth lawns and terraces began, blazing down on the travellers from a score of windows with the heartening effect of fires on a winter night, Against the pale grey sky, Blanding's castle stood out like a mountain. It was a noble pile of early Tudor building. Its history is recorded in England's history books, and Violet LeDuc has written of its architecture. It dominated the surrounding country. The feature of it which impressed Ashe most at this moment, however, was the fact that it looked warm, "'and for the first time since the drive began "'he found himself in a mood that approximated cheerfulness. "'It was a little early to begin feeling cheerful,' he discovered, "'for the journey was by no means over. "'Arrived within sight of the castle, the cart began a detour, "'which ten minutes later brought it under an arch "'and over cobblestones to the rear of the building, "'where it eventually pulled up in front of a great door. "'Ash descended painfully and beat his feet against the cobbles.' He helped Joan to climb down. Joan was apparently in a gentle glow. Women seem impervious to cold. The door opened. Warm, kitcheny scents came through it. Strong men hurried out to take down the trunks, while fair women, in the shape of two nervous scullery maids, approached Joan and Ash and bobbed curtsies. This, under more normal conditions, would have been enough to unman Ash but in his frozen state a mere curtsying scullery-maid expended herself harmlessly on him. He even acknowledged the greeting with a kindly nod. The scullery-maids, it seemed, were acting in much the same capacity as the attachés of royalty. One was there to conduct Joan to the presence of Mr. Tremlow, the housekeeper, the other to lead Ash to where Beach, the butler, waited to do honour to the valet of the castle's most important guest. After a short walk down a stone-flagged passage, Joan and her escort turned to the right. Ash's objective appeared to be located to the left. He parted from Joan with regret. Her moral support would have been welcome. Presently, his scullery maid stopped at a door and tapped thereon. on. A fruity voice, like an old tawny port made audible, said, "'Come in.' Ash's guide opened the door. "'The gentleman, Mr. Beach,' said she, "'and scuttled away to the less rarefied atmosphere of the kitchen.'" Ash's first impression of Beach, the butler, was one of tension. Other people, confronted for the first time with Beach, had felt the same. He had that strained air of being on the very point of bursting that one sees in bullfrogs and toy balloons. Nervous and imaginative men, meeting Beach, braced themselves involuntarily, "'stiffening their muscles for the explosion. "'Those who had the pleasure of more intimate acquaintance with him "'soon passed this stage, "'just as people whose homes are on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius "'become immune to fear of eruptions. "'As far back as they could remember, "'Beach had always looked as though an apoplectic fit "'were a matter of minutes. "'But he never had apoplexy, "'and in time they came to ignore the possibility of it. Ash, however, approaching him with a fresh eye, had the feeling that this strain could not possibly continue, and that within a very short space of time, the worst must happen. The prospect of this did much to rouse him from the coma into which he had been frozen by the rigors of the journey. Butlers, as a class, seemed to grow less and less like anything human in proportion to the magnificence of their surroundings. There is a type of butler employed in the comparatively modest homes of small country gentlemen who is practically a man and a brother, who hobnobs with a local tradesman, sings a good comic song at the village inn, and in times of crisis will even turn to and work the pump when the water supply suddenly fails. The greater the house, the more does the butler diverge from this type. Landings Castle was one of the more important of England's places and Beach, accordingly, had acquired a dignified inertia that almost qualified him for an inclusion in the vegetable kingdom. He moved, when he moved at all, slowly. He distilled speech with the air of one measuring out drops of some precious drug. His heavy-lidded eyes had the fixed expression of a statues. With an almost imperceptible wave of a fat white, wave of a fat white hand, he conveyed to Ash... "'that he desired him to sit down. "'With a stately movement of his other hand, "'he picked up a kettle, which simmered on the hob. "'With an inclination of his head, "'he called Ash's attention to a decanter on the table. "'In another moment, Ash was sipping a whiskey toddy, "'with the feeling that he had been privileged "'to assist at some mystic rite. "'Mr. Beach, posting himself before the fire "'and placing his hands behind his back, "'permitted speech to drip from him.' "'I have not the advantage of your name, Mr.' "'Ash introduced himself. "'Beach acknowledged the information with a half-bow. "'You must have had a cold ride, Mr. Marson. "'The wind is in the east.' "'Ash said yes. The ride had been cold. "'When the wind is in the east,' continued Mr. Beach, "'letting each syllable escape with apparent reluctance, "'I suffer from my feet.' "'I beg your pardon?' "'I suffer from my feet,' repeated the butler, measuring out the drops. "'You are a young man, Mr. Marson. "'Probably you do not know what it is to suffer from your feet.' "'He surveyed Ash, his whiskey toddy, and the wall beyond him, "'with heavy-lidded inscrutability. "'Corns,' he said. "'Ash said he was sorry. "'I suffer extremely from my feet. "'Not only corns. "'I have but recently recovered from an ingrowing toenail,' I suffered greatly from my ingrowing toenail. I suffer from swollen joints. Ash regarded this martyr with increasing disfavor. It is the flaw in the character of many excessively healthy young men that, though kind-hearted enough in most respects, they listen with a regrettable feeling of impatience to the confessions of those less happily situated as regard the ills of the flesh. Rightly or wrongly, they hold that these statements should be reserved for the ear of the medical profession and other and more general topics selected for conversation with laymen. I'm sorry, he said hastily. You must have had a bad time. Is there a large house-party here just now? We are expecting, said Mr. Beach, a number of guests. We shall in all probability sit down thirty or more to dinner. A responsibility for you, said Ash, ingratiatingly. "'Well-pleased-to-be-quit-of-the-feet topic.' "'Mr. Beach nodded. "'You are right, Mr. Marson. "'Few persons realize the responsibilities of a man in my position. "'Sometimes, I can assure you, it preys on my mind, "'and I suffer from nervous headaches.' "'Ash began to feel like a man trying to put out a fire, "'which, as fast as he checks it at one point, breaks out at another. "'Sometimes when I come off duty, everything gets blurred.' "'the outlines of objects grow indistinct and misty. "'I have to sit down in a chair. "'The pain is excruciating. "'But it helps you to forget the pain in your feet. "'No, no, I suffer from my feet simultaneously.' "'Ash gave up the struggle. "'Tell me all about your feet,' he said. "'And Mr. Beach told him all about his feet. "'The pleasantest functions must come to an end.' and the moment arrived when the final word on the subject of swollen joints was spoken. Ash, who had resigned himself to a permanent contemplation of the subject, could hardly believe he heard correctly when, at the end of some ten minutes, his companion changed the conversation. "'You have been with Mr. Peters some time, Mr. Marson?' "'Uh, no, only since last Wednesday.' "'Indeed?' Might I inquire whom you assisted before that? For a moment, Ash did what he would not have believed himself capable of doing. Regretted that the topic of feet was no longer under discussion. The question placed him in an awkward position. If he lied and credited himself with a lengthy experience as a valet, he risked exposing himself. If he told the truth and confessed... "'that this was his first maiden effort "'in the capacity of gentleman's gentleman, "'what would the butler think? "'There were objections to each course, "'but to tell the truth was the easier of the two, "'so he told it. "'Your first situation,' said Mr. Beach, indeed. "'I was, uh, doing something else "'before I met Mr. Peters,' said Ash. "'Mr. Beach was too well-bred to be inquisitive, "'but his eyebrows were not.' "'Ah!' he said. "'Ash ignored the eyebrows. "'Something different,' he said. "'There was an awkward silence. "'Ash appreciated its awkwardness. "'He was conscious of a grievance against Mr. Peters. "'Why could not Mr. Peters have brought him down here as a secretary? "'To be sure, he had advanced some objection to that course "'in their conversation at the offices of Main Price, Main Price and Boole, "'but merely... "'a silly, far-fetched objection. "'He wished he'd had the sense to fight the point while there was time, "'but at the moment, when they were arranging plans, "'he had been rather tickled by the thought of becoming a valet. "'The notion had a pleasing musical-comedy touch about it. "'Why had he not foreseen the complications that must ensue? "'He could tell by the look on his face "'that this confounded butler was waiting for him to give a full explanation.' "'what would he think if he withheld it? "'He would probably suppose that Ash had been in prison. "'Well, there is nothing to be done about it. "'If Beach was suspicious, he must remain suspicious. "'Fortunately, the suspicions of a butler do not matter much.' "'Mr. Beach's eyebrows were still mutely urging him to reveal all, "'but Ash directed his gaze at that portion of the room "'which Mr. Beach did not fill.' He would be hanged if he was going to let himself be hypnotized by a pair of eyebrows into incriminating himself. He glared stolidly at the pattern of the wallpaper, which represented a number of birds of an unknown species seated on a corresponding number of exotic shrubs. The silence was growing oppressive. Somebody had to break it soon. And as Mr. Beach was still confining himself to the language of the eyebrow, and apparently intended to fight it out on that line if it took all summer, Ash himself broke it. It seemed to him as he reconstructed the scene in bed that night that Providence must have suggested the subject to Mr. Peters' indigestion, for the mere mention of his employer's sufferings acted like magic on the butler. "'I might have had better luck while I was looking for a place,' said Ash. "'I dare say you know how bad-tempered Mr. Peters is. "'He is dyspeptic,' "'So,' responded Mr. Beach, "'I have been informed.' "'He brooded for a space. "'I, too,' he proceeded, "'suffer from my stomach. "'I have a weak stomach. "'The lining of my stomach "'is not what I could wish "'the lining of my stomach to be.' "'Tell me,' said Ash gratefully, "'leaning forward in an attitude of attention, "'all about the lining of your stomach.' "'It was a quarter of an hour later "'when Mr. Beach was checked in his discourse.' by the chiming of the little clock on the mantelpiece. He turned round, and gazed at it with surprise, not unmixed with displeasure. "'So late,' he said. "'I shall have to be going about my duties. "'And you also, Mr. Marson, if I may make the suggestion. "'No doubt Mr. Peters will be wishing to have your assistance "'in preparing for dinner. "'If you go along the passage outside, "'you will come to the door that separates our portion of the house "'from the other.' "'I must beg you to excuse me. I have to go to the cellar.' "'Following his directions, "'Ash came after a walk of a few yards to a green door, "'which, swinging at his push, "'gave him a view of what he correctly took "'to be the main hall of the castle, "'a wide, comfortable space ringed with settees "'and warmed by a log fire burning in a mammoth fireplace. "'On the right, a broad staircase led to the upper regions.' It was at this point that Ash realized the incompleteness of Mr. Beach's directions. Doubtless the broad staircase would take him to the floor on which were the bedrooms. But how was he to ascertain, without the tedious process of knocking and inquiring at each door, which was the one assigned to Mr. Peters? It was too late to go back and ask the butler for further guidance. Already he was on his way to the cellar in quest of the evening's wine." As he stood irresolute, a door across the hall opened, and a man of his own age came out. Through the doorway, which the young man held open for an instant while he answered a question from somebody within, Ash had a glimpse of glass topped cases. Could this be the museum, his goal? The next moment, the door, opening a few inches more, revealed the outlying portions of an Egyptian mummy and brought certainty. It flashed across Ash's mind that the sooner he explored the museum and located Mr. Peter Scarab, the better. He decided to ask Beach to take him there as soon as he had leisure. Meantime, the young man had closed the museum door and was crossing the hall. He was a wiry-haired, severe-looking young man, with a sharp nose and eyes that gleamed through rimless spectacles. None other, in fact, than Lord Emsworth's private secretary, the efficient Baxter. Ash hailed him. I say, old man, would you mind telling me how I get to Mr. Peter's room? I've lost my bearings. He did not reflect that this was hardly the way in which valets in the best society address their superiors. That is the worst of adopting what might be called a character part. One can manage the business well enough. It is the dialogue that provides the pitfalls. Mr. Baxter would have accorded a hearty agreement to the statement that this was not the way in which a valet should have spoken to him, but at the moment he was not aware that Ashe was a valet. From his easy mode of address he assumed that he was one of the numerous guests who had been arriving at the castle all day. As he had asked for Mr. Peters, he fancied that Ashe must be the Honorable Freddie's American friend, George Emerson, whom he had not yet met. Consequently, he replied with much cordiality that Mr. Peter's room was the second to the left on the second floor. He said Ash could not miss it. Ash said he was much obliged. "'Awfully good of you,' said Ash. "'Not at all,' said Mr. Baxter. "'You lose your way in a place like this,' said Ash. "'You certainly do,' said Mr. Baxter. Ash went on his upward path, and in a few moments was knocking at the door indicated and sure enough, it was Mr. Peters' voice that invited him to enter. Mr. Peters, partially arrayed in the correct garb for gentlemen about to dine, was standing in front of the mirror, wrestling with his evening tie. As Ash entered, he removed his fingers and anxiously examined his handiwork. It proved unsatisfactory. He tore the offending linen from his neck. "'Damn the thing!' It was plain to Ash that his employer was in no sunny mood. There are few things less calculated to engender sunniness in a naturally bad-tempered man than a dress tie that will not let itself be pulled and twisted into the right shape. Even when things went well, Mr. Peters hated dressing for dinner. Words cannot describe his feelings when they went wrong. There is something to be said in excuse for this impatience, It is a hollow mockery to oblige to deck one's person as for a feast, when that feast is to consist of a little asparagus and a few nuts. Mr. Peter's eye met ashes in the mirror. "'Oh, it's you, is it? Come in, then. Don't stand staring. Close that door quick. Hustle. Don't scrape your feet on the floor. Try to look intelligent. Don't gape. Where have you been all this while? Why didn't you come before? Can you tie a tie?' All right, then, do it. Somewhat calmed by the snow-white butterfly-shaped creation that grew under Ash's fingers, he permitted himself to be helped into his coat. He picked up the remnant of a black cigar from the dressing-table and relit it. "'I've been thinking about you,' he said. "'Yes,' said Ash. "'Have you located the scarab yet?' "'No. "'What the devil have you been doing with yourself, then?' "'You've had time to collar it a dozen times. "'I have been talking to the butler. "'What the devil do you waste time talking to butlers for? "'I suppose you haven't even located the museum yet. "'Yes, I've done that. "'Oh, you have, have you? "'Well, that's something. "'And how do you propose setting about the job? "'The best plan would be to go there very late at night. "'Well, you didn't propose to stroll in in the afternoon, did you?' How are you going to find the scarab when you do get in?" Ash had not thought of that. The deeper he went into this business, the more things did there seem to be in it of which he had not thought. "I don't know," he confessed. "You don't know? Tell me, young man, are you considered pretty bright, as Englishmen go?" "I am not English, I was born near Boston." "Oh, you were, were you? "'You blanked, bone-headed, bean-eating boob,' cried Mr. Peters, "'frothing over quite unexpectedly, "'and waving his arms in a sudden burst of fury. "'Then if you are an American, "'why don't you show a little more enterprise? "'Why don't you put something over? "'Why do you loaf about the place "'as though you were supposed to be an ornament? "'I want results, and I want them quick. "'I'll tell you how you can recognize my scarab "'when you get into the museum.' "'That shameless old green-goods man, who sneaked it from me, "'has had the gall, the nerve, to put it all by itself, "'with a notice as big as a circus poster alongside of it, "'saying that it is a Cheops of the Fourth Dynasty, "'presented,' Mr. Peters choked, "'presented by J. Preston Peters Esquire. "'That's how you're going to recognize it.' "'Ash did not laugh,' "'but he nearly dislocated a rib in his effort to abstain from doing so. "'It seemed to him that this act on Lord Emsworth's part "'effectually disposed of the theory that Britons have no sense of humor. "'To rob a man of his choicest possession "'and then thank him publicly for letting you have it "'appealed to Ashe as excellent comedy. "'The thing isn't even in a glass case,' continued Mr. Peters.' It's lying on an open tray on top of a cabinet of Roman coins. Anybody who is left alone for two minutes in the place could take it. It's criminal carelessness to leave a valuable scarab about like that. If Lord Jesse James is going to steal my Cheops, he might at least have had the decency to treat it as though it was worth something. But it makes it easier for me to get to it, said Ash consolingly. "'It's got to be made easy if you were to get it,' snapped Mr. Peters. "'Here's another thing. "'You say you're going to try for it late at night. "'Well, what are you going to do if anyone catches you "'prowling round at that time? "'Have you considered that?' "'No. "'You would have to say something, wouldn't you? "'You wouldn't chat about the weather, would you? "'You wouldn't discuss the latest play. "'You'd have to think up some mighty good reason "'for being out of bed at that time, wouldn't you?' "'I suppose so.' "'Oh, you do admit that, do you? "'Well, what you would say is this. "'You would explain that I had rung for you to come and read me to sleep. "'Do you understand?' "'You think that would be a satisfactory explanation of my being in the museum?' "'Idiot, I don't mean that you're to say it if you're caught actually in the museum. "'If you're caught in the museum, the best thing you can do is to say nothing.' "'and hope that the judge will let you off light "'because it's your first offence. "'You're to say it if you're found wandering about on your way there. "'It sounds thin to me. "'Does it? "'Well, let me tell you that it isn't so thin as you suppose, "'for it's what you will actually have to do most nights. Two nights out of three I have to be read to sleep. "'My indigestion gives me insomnia. "'As though to push this fact home, "'Mr. Peters suddenly bent double,' "'Oof,' he said, "'wow!' "'He removed the cigar from his mouth "'and inserted a digestive tabloid. "'The lining of my stomach is all wrong,' he added. "'It is curious how trivial are the immediate causes "'that produce revolutions. "'If Mr. Peters had worded his complaint differently, "'Ash would in all probability "'have borne it without active protest. "'He had been growing more and more annoyed "'with this little person "'who buzzed and barked and bit at him.' Yet the idea of definite revolt had not occurred to him. But his sufferings at the hands of Beach, the butler, had reduced him to a state where he could endure no further mention of stomach linings. There comes a time when our capacity for listening to detailed data about the linings of other people's stomachs is exhausted. He looked at Mr. Peters sternly. He had ceased to be intimidated by the fiery little man, "'and regarded him simply as a hypochondriac "'who needed to be told a few useful facts. "'How do you expect not to have indigestion? "'You take no exercise and you smoke all day long.' "'The novel sensation of being criticized, "'and by a beardless youth at that, held Mr. Peter silent. "'He started convulsively, but he did not speak. "'Ash, on his pet subject, became eloquent.' In his opinion, dyspeptics cumbered the earth. To his mind, they had the choice between health and sickness, and they deliberately chose the latter. Your sort of man makes me angry. I know your type inside out. You overwork and shirk exercise, and let your temper run away with you, and smoke strong cigars on an empty stomach. And when you get indigestion, as a natural result, you look on yourself as a martyr, nourish a perpetual grouch, "'and make the lives of everybody you meet miserable. "'If you would put yourself into my hands for a month, "'I would have you eating bricks and thriving on them. "'Up in the morning, Larson exercises, "'cold bath, a brisk rub-down, sharp walk. "'Who the devil asked your opinion, "'you impertinent young hound?' inquired Mr. Peters. "'Don't interrupt, confound you,' shouted Ash. "'Now you have made me forget what I was going to say.' There was a tense silence. Then Mr. Peters began to speak. "'You inferno, impudent... "'Don't talk to me like that. "'I'll talk to you just... "'Ash took a step toward the door. "'Very well, then,' he said. "'I'll quit. I'm through. "'You can get somebody else to do this job of yours for you.' The sudden sagging of Mr. Peters' jaw, the look of consternation that flashed on his face, told Ash he had found the right weapon that the game was in his hands. He continued with a feeling of confidence. "'If I had known what being your valet involved, I wouldn't have undertaken the thing for a hundred thousand dollars. Just because you had some idiotic prejudice against letting me come down here as your secretary, which would have been the simple and obvious thing, I find myself in a position where at any moment I may be publicly rebuked by the butler and have the head still remained looking at me as though I were something the cat had brought in. His voice trembled with self-pity. "'Do you realize a fraction of the awful things you have let me in for? "'How on earth am I to remember whether I go in before the chef "'or after the third footman? "'I shan't have a peaceful minute while I'm in this place. "'I've got to sit and listen by the hour to a bore of a butler "'who seems to be a sort of walking hospital,' "'I've got to steer my way through a complicated system of etiquette. "'And on top of all that, you have the nerve, the insolence, "'to imagine that you can use me as a punching bag "'to work your bad temper off. "'You have the immortal rhyme to suppose "'that I will stand for being nagged and bullied by you "'whenever your suicidal way of living "'brings on an attack of indigestion. "'You have the supreme gall to fancy "'that you can talk to me as you please.' "'Very well. I've had enough of it. I resign. "'If you want the scarab of yours recovered, let somebody else do it. "'I've retired from business.' He took another step towards the door. A shaking hand clutched at his sleeve. "'My boy, my dear boy, be reasonable.' Ash was intoxicated with his own oratory. The sensation of bull-ragging a genuine millionaire was new and exhilarating he expanded his chest and spread his feet like a colossus. That's all very well, he said, coldly disentangling himself from the hand. You can't get out of it like that. We've got to come to an understanding. The point is that if I am to be subjected to your, your senile malevolence, every time you have a twinge of indigestion, no amount of money could pay me to stop on. My dear boy, it shall not occur again. I was hasty. Mr. Peters, with agitated fingers, relit the stump of his cigar. "'Throw away that cigar!' "'My boy! Throw it away. You say you were hasty. Of course you were hasty. And as long as you abuse your digestion, you will go on being hasty. I want something better than apologies. If I am to stop here, we must get to the root of things. You must put yourself in my hands, as though I were your doctor. No more cigars!' Every morning, regular exercises. No, no. Very well. No, stop, stop. What sort of exercises? I'll show you tomorrow morning. Brisk walks. I hate walking. Cold baths. No, no. Very well. No, stop. A cold bath would kill me at my age. It would put new life into you. Do you consent to the cold baths? No. Very well. Yes, yes, yes. You promise? Yes, yes. All right then. The distant sound of the dinner gong floated in. We settled that just in time, said Ash. Mr Peters regarded him fixedly. Young man, he said slowly, if after all this you fail to recover my cheops for me, I'll I'll buy George I'll skin you. Don't talk like that, said Ash. That's another thing you've got to remember. If my treatment is to be successful, you must not let yourself think in that way. You must exercise self-control mentally. You must think beautiful thoughts. The idea of skinning you is a beautiful thought, said Mr. Peters, wistfully. (coughs) Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.